Hello and welcome to Inside Stories from the MPA. This is the podcast for the Manchester Publicity Association. It's where you'll hear the latest insights and experience from other industry leaders in the city. You'll also find out about upcoming news and events. So I'm Christian James, the MPA's chair, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Cindy Simmons and Lisa Morton. Cindy, as many of you will know, is the managing director of the MPA, and Lisa is, of course, a board member, but most importantly, she's a founder and CEO of Roland Dransfield PR. In this episode, Lisa's bringing you a fascinating interview or inside story with Nikki Unsworth. Cindy, how did inside stories start? Interesting enough, actually, Christian, way back when Nick Johnson, urban splash at the time, decided to do this crazy thing and go and open a market in Altrincham. He was the first person that we interviewed. It was called something else at the time. I can't quite remember the name now. But basically, Inside Stories morphed from that and on the back of that. And um, we've done various people through the industry. So he said, you know what, let's create the podcast. And that's where we are today with Purposeful Podcasts. Great. Thanks, Cindy. So, Lisa, tell me about Nikki. Well, I am just gutted that I hadn't met Nikki years ago and I met her recently through Sandy Lindsay actually um, and I knew about her and I kind of looked up to her as a really kind of strong inspiring career woman and when I sat down with her to have a chat ahead of our conversation we got on like a house on fire and as a result she's actually made me commit to having golf lessons at her golf club not to say though that she's actually got tons and tons of time after she sold a business so she's extremely busy Some of our listeners may know that she grew the agency BGL out of an MBO that she was involved in into a highly successful sale to Dentsu around two years ago. She's currently a non-exec director to a number of independent agencies and she's helping them to deliver growth. And she said she's absolutely loving it because she's involved in lots of different types of businesses but she's got the freedom as well to have that objective view when the, and it's not her business. So yeah, I mean, it was it was a great conversation. It was great to find that we had lots of things in common, but we also, as agency owners, we do share some of the same challenges. Thanks, Lisa. So before we hear from Nikki, let's take a look at some industry news with What's Up, What's On. In this episode, three things that are on my mind and certainly seem to be in discussions with, with other members from the MPA around the city. The first was the wonderful spectacle that was the coronation and everything that went with it. But the question was whether brand Britain is something that commercial brands will attach themselves to as a result of the coronation, or was it just a big weekend of Britishness? It certainly feels like it was the latter, but I'd be interested if anyone's got any views out there, please share them with the MPA. That would be great. Second up, was the fact we are hitting the season climax with professional football. Many agencies out there are at their half year or even full year. It seems to be like many teams sort of stretching this tenuous analogy out. Many of the uh, agencies that we come across uh, is a real mixed bag of results and it just shows what a topsy-turvy business world we are living in at the moment where decisions are being made ever closer to the wire And that certainly doesn't help in planning, that's for sure. And one thing that definitely isn't helping planning and something that's been a very hot topic in agencies over the last few months is something that uh, I'm going to call, I'm not sure whether I'm the first one to call it this, but I'm going to call them ghost pitches. So a lot of our our members 
not feeling too good about the fact that they're getting invited to tender for work. There's no written brief. There's no budget mention. There's no face-to-face meeting offered. And there's even no feedback. Again, you can reach me through the MPA. I'd be very interested if people have got uh, stories to share on that. And then uh, what we might do is just pull some advice together on how to avoid those and, and the key questions that you should be asking to avoid avoid a ghost pitch. Right, so that's a, uh, a little bit of what's up. Uh, Cindy, what about what's on? Yeah, June's going to be quite busy, but first up, on the 6th of June, I think I mentioned it briefly last time, but we just um, finalised it and now launched it. We're um, working with Becky Irvine, who is a well-being coach, a life coach, and we're just trialling a small workshop it's really cost-effective and unearthing what people need post-pandemic in, term, in terms of wellness and how, what they can take back to their agency. I'm hoping it's going to appeal to more smaller businesses where they don't have big HR functions and they can come for a 50-odd quid and come listen to Becky. It's a half-day workshop in central Manchester and maybe have you know, start having a champion for wellness within their business so they don't have that luxury of some big brands have you know corporate um, structured well-being programmes. So that's the start of maybe something new there. And then later in the month, we've got the uh, the lovely team from SMS Social Media. And they're doing a training workshop, again, a half-day workshop, understanding and looking at your social media strategy. And again, probably aimed at the smaller businesses who, again, don't have big teams of marketeers running their businesses. So that's the three key events kicking off end of this month and into June. Fantastic. So that's the what's up, what's on. Let's get on to Nikki Unsworth now. And Lisa, you started off your conversation by talking about the fact that two years on from having sold BJL to Dentsu, she's certainly not on a permanent holiday. No, absolutely not. I think if you're a busy person, you're going to stay busy. And she said to me that the first few days after she'd finally sold the business and came out with the business, um, she said it was a real case of looking at her own identity. And the holiday period didn't last very long at all. She soon got involved in rolling her sleeves up. And, you know, for the benefit of lots of agencies and the people she's working with, she is helping to um, helping them, you know, to uh, take advantage of the all the, the lessons she's learned through an incredibly illustrious career. I'm just hoping that I can find a slot with her at some point in the near future. <laughs> and, of course, as you would imagine, with somebody that has run an agency for a long time, as we all know in the agency world, that, the demands on handling multiple clients, growing a team, it involves so much plate spinning. But in actual fact, as Nikki explained to me, that's been one of the many aspects of her career that she's really valued. I think it's one of the joys of the industry is that you, you learn to multitask on lots of different levels, everything from running a business through to pitching, through to dealing with problems that your team might have through to dealing with client issues and I think I just got used to over the years as many people also having family male and female juggling lots of things and it was interesting to reflect when I first stopped because as you know I'm back now doing some consulting non-execing sort of with less of the stress and much more of the joy but what I realized is that I had loved that aspect of my life you know when you're in the thick of it sometimes that's multitasking and everything going on at once can feel a little bit daunting but actually there is a joy in it in the sort of sense of purpose and the accomplishment and the touch points with lots and lots of different people so I think my guess is that a lot of people in our line of work live their work life balance that way and make it work find a way of making it work and I think I certainly did 
And do you think everybody that comes into agency life can do that? Or do you think is a certain kind of personality or makeup of the individual? Yeah, I don't think everybody can do it and nor should they. And I actually think there are also people in agencies who have to have more focus. So if I'm honest, you know, whilst it's good for certain people to multitask and have lots of touch points, so there's needs like the planners, the strategists, creators when they're in the middle of a campaign, need to be capable of absolute and utter focus and you need to find a way of creating that for them. But then maybe the project managers, the production people, the traffic people need to be capable of multitasking. So I think that was one of the my observations about agency life is that it we absorb lots of different personality types and it's important that you get the right people in the right roles. But I think as you do get bigger, you can adapt a little bit more to people's personality types and find the roles for them. And and that's the other point, isn't it? You don't want a cookie cutter team. You want people that are different in terms of hobbies and levels of curiosity and you know the things that they value. So if that's important to you as a business, you need to find ways of accommodating it. Do you think that agencies are in a better place now to be able to accommodate that diversity? Because if I go back, say, 26 years to when I started my business, I had children four years after, I think, four years after I started, three years, and I had to pretty much kind of conceal the fact that, well, certainly conceal the fact that I was pregnant and then almost conceal the fact that I had kids for a starter as a working woman. Do you th- How far have we come, do you think? Oh, it's a million miles away, isn't it? Again, you know, I... I left the industry when my children were very small because I just couldn't see a way of the two working hand in hand. I went and and I did some retraining and I I lectured on post-grad courses because I thought that would fit better. So we've come on in leaps and bounds. Now, partly that's been technology enabled. Partly there's been a change in attitudes. And the final tipping point probably has been the remote working and proving via this sort of big social experiment that was COVID that actually businesses can not only function but can thrive by allowing people to be to be remote. So I think it does still feel a bit experimental at that end of the spectrum, but it's come on in leaps and bounds. And yeah, it's, it, I think it's all a very positive thing. And again, I would make that not a female thing. It's a male, female, it's a family mm. thing, isn't it? Just it, it, it work and home can live side by side or actually not even side by side intermingle much more happily, which I think is bound to give better outcomes. Mm. So let's just go back and talk about how you started your career. So talk us through the early years and then and how you got into, as you say, agency world. So my entry into the industry was I, I grew up in St. Helens and St. Helens was at that point, it was two things essentially. It was rugby league and it was Pilkington Glass. And Pilkington Glass offered sponsorship. And I can remember in my careers office seeing this marketing sponsorship, which essentially meant they paid you to do your degree, which just seemed financially like a really good thing and um, marketing sounded interesting so I kind of got in by a bit of happen chance if you like but it, I felt it was interesting I worked client side for a spell as part of that worked with agencies and the minute I started working with agencies and creative industries recognised that was the sort of where I wanted to be I transitioned more into kind of consulting and I started to work with agencies so I worked with what was then KLP I did some some work with the CAM and the CAM people in Manchester probably don't even realise that but it was the CAM in Bristol I worked with BJL and then BJL with me a directorship. So I was kind of freelancing with them and I did some consultancy for clients as well. So a bit of a hybrid career, but I could work it around my children. And then Mike, Steve and Trevor asked me to join as a director, which is when I kind of talked about the flexibility I needed. And they just gave me that flexibility. And I think it was smart of them because I think they probably got more from me than than I, I really signed up for. 
we then did the rest is kind of known by people within in BGL certainly but we then went and did a, a management buyout and then many many years later so to Dentsu so I think I ended up being in the agency much longer than the original founders when I know I was event, eventually and I keep in touch with the two that are remaining still so it's kind of quite an interesting so two transitions in the business an MBO and then a trade sales that's that was really interesting to see loads of learnings and lucky to have seen all that transition and I think we were about 19 people in the agency when I started and we got up to about 85 so lots and lots of change but it was you know a good team around us and it was good it was good to see the, the agency grow in that way to have such big growth in an agency there what are some of your learnings I mean how did you actually do that I admire the people who start businesses I joined when it was at its very early stages but I didn't start it and there's a definite skill set an entrepreneurial skill set needed to start something from a standing start and I still admire that massively I suppose I came in with a bit more of a structured background and was able to apply some of those learnings but then I learned a lot on the job I think surrounding yourself with good people I didn't think of it as building a network. I made lots of friends in the industry. So I learned lots from other people in the industry. I tended to say yes to things. So I would turn up at events. I'd listen to people talk. And then we as a team, we recruited good people. And I think if you start recruiting people who are better than you, or, you know, certainly have got their deep dive, whether it's strategy or creative or, you know, organization or process, you suddenly find yourself part of something that is quite special and I feel that that's what happened at BGL. I think we had a senior team that was quite special and I don't know if any of us were brilliant alone but we were certainly good, very, very good together and I think that that made the world a difference and it was, you know, it was good fun to work with people like that but I think it helps with the growth of the business. How do you make sure that you retain kind of the integrity of the organisation as it grows? Well, we weren't massive so I suppose you still, at that number, you still you still know everybody in the business, you still know their family background, you know, their aspirations, hopes, dreams, etc. Some simple things like making sure you've got a structure in place where everybody's got somebody to report into and you do regular one-to-ones, which is a more a process thing. Some very clear cultural cues, which again, if the owners are working in the business, I think is relatively easy to do because you role model it without even trying. So, you know, we had some quite distinctive agency values, like we were collaborative so we believe that alone we're smart but together we're, we're brilliant driven you know we're not here to be ordinary so we're trying to get something that's better we talk about being effective so not letting the day run you but running the day and clarity making complex things simple so we had some very clear guidelines for behaviors and then in terms of how we worked with people you know open honest fair can't be everybody's best friend all the time but really trying very hard to make sure that you understood people's specific circumstances and then being accessible and listening and again I I bring that back to the senior team I think probably that was role modeled by the whole of the board I would hope anyway. So those values obviously are in your DNA because you just rattle those off and um, and a lot of organizations don't we did a big piece of value work in 2018 when I realized that we weren't showing up in the way that we that was important to me as an agency and I found that by embedding those values and doing that piece of work actually with the whole team, it was a game changer for us. And then when COVID hit, the values are actually what kept us going because that in particular is we, we had no toolkit for the pandemic. And so in actual fact, on the day that we were told we had to go and work from home, we, I walked out of the office and our values were on the wall. They were everywhere else as well. But 
I kind of stood in front of them and I thought, when we come back in, this business could be very, very different, but the values will stay the same. And every day when we communicated, we knew what we stood for, even though we weren't all in that same space and the, and the openness and transparency of saying, look, I don't have the answers, but I'll tell you everything I know today. It's, it's makes such a difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you're right. I think it's even more important when you are beginning to work remotely because you're not in the office to reinforce and role model. So, yeah, I think those things are are important. I think probably in any business, to be honest, but... Um... I think they can make a big difference. And I think a strong culture is important. And I think, interestingly, when, when you look at why bigger businesses buy smaller agencies like we were, um, often it's the culture is one of the things that they cite because it can get lost in a big business. It's hard to sustain it, isn't it? Very much so. Did you, well, it must have been important to you, but did you check out the values of Dentsu I and mean, was it were they compatible you know that's ultimately your baby something you grow and you don't want to hand it off to an organization yeah. no matter what the deal is unless they're going to share the same integrity as much as we could judge you, you would say yes we had an interesting journey with them and that we're probably I can't remember the exact time frames of talking to them but let's say it was a year and a half and then we were a two-year transition and we worked with the Manchester team because they had a Manchester office so they got that and the McGarry Bowen, which is the London creative element, was a similar size to us. So all those things fitted. And they were very explicit about wanting to borrow from our culture. They loved the fact that simple things like the senior team were empowered. People felt like they could make decisions and cared about driving things forward. So I would say that they, they mapped very, very well. What is very hard then to say is when you step away, what then happens? And I think, you know, that, that's the tricky bit when you sell. But we had, as I say, we had probably a year and a half talking to them and then a two-year transition. So you do your best to sustain as much of it as you can. Inevitably, things do change. But they did value the same sort of things. And I felt like I learned a lot in the two years I was transitioning. But I felt I slotted in really comfortably. So I did spend a lot of time in London at the London office. Really enjoyed working with the Dentsu team. Met some great people. So, yeah, you, you have to hope that that fit is as good as it can be when you're doing an independent into a network business. Yeah. And how was that experience? Because you do hear mixed reviews, don't you, of people in any industry that have sold the business and then they have that handover period, that earn out or whatever, and they've got to go and work in, in another organisation. Was that very different? Or you, you said you slotted in, but it must have still been quite different than having... It was different. I did slot in and I wonder whether this is partly back to the, you know, I wasn't the person that actually started the business. No, I'd, I'd been in the business for... Um, well over 20 years so you know it, and we'd owned it for mo most of that time so it very much felt like our business for sure but I hadn't started it so I didn't find it difficult I'd had a boss years ago I was happy to have other people in the mix that were kind of guiding I had my own clear remit I liked being part of a team and I felt very much part of a team I felt like I was listened to I felt like we brought something different to the party so for me it was a positive experience you know it was it was another if I look at my career, it was another very positive transition and an experience that I hadn't otherwise, I wouldn't otherwise have had. What would you say your key characteristics are as a leader? I think I, I truly believe in other people. I do believe we're stronger together. So I never think I've got all the answers, but I think I can guide, I can guide and shape something. I think I'm a good listener. I think I'm good at getting the best from people. I'm good at putting a team together and empowering them. Yeah, I think they would be the sort of strong things because what I would hear at BJL was the senior team. I think the team throughout, to be honest, the team throughout the business was strong. 
but the senior team I thought were powerful. And I think when you get a team that are performing well together, it's good fun, first off, it's enjoyable, but you can move mountains, you know? So I think that believing in other people and not believing you have to have all the answers or that you have to be the best, but you have to be capable of getting the best out of people. That's interesting about not having to have all the answers because I think that's an absolute, it's a revelation when you, for you and your team, when you actually admit that or communicate that you don't have the answers because I read a great book by John Amici, Promises of Giants, and you're saying that we can all be giants and we can all be leaders, but as leaders we can put people off from leading because we pretend or we think it's essential that we say we've got all the answers and we're completely you know omnipotent and we're not and I found in COVID the second that I just went I've not got a clue it other leaders came out from everywhere because they think well I can I don't have the answers too so therefore I can lead and it was honestly it was just it was like the scales fell from my eyes at that point I thought I can show that vulnerability yeah I agree totally and I think that I mean I, I don't know about you I've always got a plan I've always got a way out of it I can always see the steps we need to take to move it on. I don't know quite where mm. we're going to get to. But I think when I come back to collaboration, I that's kind of what I mean outside the business as well as inside the business. Because if I look at my kind of work, friendship groups really, but you've got the whole Manchester creative and media community, which I think in, in recent years has felt more like a community. And the MPA mm. has had a lot to do with that, I would say. And then look at my kind of London community and I think setting up the office in Shoreditch and being part of the IPA gave me access to lots of great people there. And then my third pillar, I would say, would have been Tribe Global, which was the independent international network, which I was a founding partner and subsequently chair of. But the inputs I got from all of those groups of people were invaluable. And, you know, the Tribe Global, you know, when we were all going through COVID and, and dealing with businesses changing and, you know, just sounding boards from people, people who were dealing with the same problems as you, having a point of view, so I think that collaboration isn't just within the business, it's external as well. And I think if you can tap into that, well, first of all, it's not as, it's a, it's not as lonely a place to be. But secondly, you can learn lots and access lots of great information. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's so, as you say, when times of crisis, um, that's when you realise that all that work that you've done, all those friendships you've made, you can really kind of pull on some of that experience, can't you? Exactly. How did you find, because you, did you sell, you sold to, to just, before the pandemic, did. didn't you? So in the February 2019, and of course COVID hit us in the early 2020, well, it was interesting. They Dentsu were brilliant because what that was when I really recognised the value of something, part of something bigger because we, as we all did, we all got, we all went home within days with no real infrastructure in place or roadmap to put in place. But what happened there, Dentsu took all the heavy lifting in terms of technology. And, and I mean, now we're all very geared up to working remotely, but then it was a, it was a big leap of faith, which allowed us to home in on the clients. So I think we very much focused on the people and the clients and the commercial side of the business and the kind of infrastructure around COVID decision-making, COVID protocols, technology all happened around us. So that was a real plus point. And it meant that we did, we, we, we focused very much on the business, which was great. Just, I mean, obviously it was a major challenge to everybody, but you must have been through some significant challenges in your career so can you kind of tell us about any specifics and how you dealt with them yeah I mean you gosh you have loads don't you um I think this is where I come back to the resilience now and you don't really that's the one thing I think you don't do as a leader you don't share 
all the problems with all the people because you you know you're expected to first solve them so i do take that responsibility very seriously but that isn't to say things don't take the toll and they do um i think we had a very we've had various tough spells that you know go through the mbo was tricky transition the business you know senior people in the business will they do it won't they do it you know should we stick with bgl is it going to be so that was a tricky time and 2008 everybody had the recession hit our two biggest clients went in a heartbeat. One was Bradford and Bingley, who went as part of the financial crisis. And one was a big, it was kind of office infrastructure, business Regis, it was called. They were our two biggest clients. They both stopped spending. And then one of our partners died unexpectedly and very young. And I can remember just thinking, how on earth will we get through this? What you do is you dig deep, you dig in. And, you know, people come from the sidelines because they do, but other people come and help. And we got through it by rallying together as a team. Um, we got through the numbers by really focusing in on new business, trying to look at where we had the gaps, where were the transferable skills, targeting other businesses that maybe would have been in competition with the ones we'd lost. And, you know, a year later, we were in a really strong position. So I think that was probably one of our most testing times. But agencies are like leaky buckets. You win something, you lose something. You might not even lose it. You just they stop spending for some reason or the client has their own particular challenges. So I think this tenacity and resilience and ready to go again and optimism and just keeping going is so, so important. And I think that's been a, a trait of the business for a long, long time and helped us get through some tough times. Leaky bucket, that made me laugh. It's so true. <laughs> so what makes a good client? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm still friends with lots of, not, not all, it's not, the ones I'm not in touch with, not that you're not friends, just people's paths take different tracks, don't they? I think um, it's like any relationship, isn't it? It's, it's trust, it's kind of understanding each other's skill sets and strengths, understanding what everybody's trying to achieve from the relationship, what objectives there are, trying to make sure that you're helping them fulfill it, an honest and open relationship, one that's not complicated by stresses and strains of problems financially, etc. One of the things we used to do early on is have a, a real sharing of what, what do we need to get out of this. And then when everybody's driving towards the same goals, it's all a lot easier. And then trusting each other's respective strengths, I guess. I think creativity particularly is a leap of faith for lots of clients. You know, you're buying into a creative idea. But I genuinely believe creative ideas can change the fortunes of businesses. So I think if you have a client that buys into that and works with you, then you can get some amazing outcomes. And, and I still have quite a few clients that I keep in touch with now, you know, which is lovely. Some agencies, you know, you hear stories of them being nightmare clients, team members being made to work with the nightmare client. I mean, how, what's your experience of that been over the years? Or, you know, have you had a philosophy where you won't make team members work with people who aren't kind of showing up with your own values? I think we kind of broadly speaking, I would say, had clients that fitted the culture. Because if you think about when clients go through a pitch, they go through, I mean, a good pitch. It's a bit of desk research, a bit of talking to other clients, some chemistry early on, a number of meetings, then a pitch. So by then, you usually kind of know, don't you? So I think, I mean, I'd very, be very protective of junior staff if they weren't being treated well. But I feel if you've got a good relationship, you should be able to have some direct conversations. I think they're kind of two separate things for me. One is what makes a good client. The other is how do you protect people if they feel vulnerable in a relationship. And I think it's like you would anything. You'd understand what the problems were, either help them through it, understand what their issues were, and then talk to the client. I didn't have loads of problems like that, but to be truthful, you have a few, don't you, along the way. 
and I would be protect. My natural instinct would be to be protective of staff, but to try and fix the problem, and understand that everybody doesn't fit every situation. So sometimes it is a question of changing personalities. I mean, I know I've not been the right fit for some clients. Everybody doesn't fit everybody else, do they? So just common sense, I think, really. Do you? Yeah, exactly. I agree with that, and I think there's a there's a baseline of which you, you know you wouldn't tolerate certain behaviours, and we have offboarded some high-profile, profitable clients against our value set because they wouldn't... I can't say this is how we run the business, is what's important to us if we're allowing those behaviours to impact negatively members of the team. And yeah. and because of the values in place, it wasn't a difficult decision. I had to do it. Otherwise, yeah. I'd lose... Uh, you know, you'd lose the integrity of the agency in that respect. I do think that, absolutely, some personalities are absolutely fine with some personalities, and it's not that that person's a a bad or a negative person it's just that they communicate in a certain way and I think you know it's really important I think to actually in our team we do change account teams around not just because there's a challenge but because I think it's important that you get used to different communication styles and ways of working. Yes I think that's a really good point and, and I think if it is a way in which you work type question I think pitches are really important but a pitch happens every now and again but pitched a well should actually iron out any early problems. But it makes you think maybe annual reviews are good because that allows you to flush out with the client, not in a pressurised situation, what's working, what's not working, and adapt. But if you have to adapt when the problem is extreme, it's super stressful. Where actually if you have a sort of step back moment annually, it allows you to sort of maybe take a little bit more of a calmer view of things and then adapt accordingly. So I think it's like running any business, isn't it? But ours is so people dependent. Those relationships become really key, don't they? Very much so. One of our values is walk a mile in another's shoes. And that's for us as a team, but also for our clients, because they have the same problems and external pressures away from the business that we may not understand what they are. So I think that regular dialogue and business friendships, I think, you know, you've used that word often. And I think if you can get that, you're going to keep a client for a long time. Completely. And it just makes it a more enjoyable way of working, I think, doesn't it? Definitely. How are you working now? So out of your contractual obligations and less chaos, what's happening for you now? (laughs) Well, I think it was interesting because I think, first of all, I can fill my time really easily, but I missed some of the dynamics of the industry. So I'm working with a number of agencies, really mainly on that kind of growth and development piece. I would describe it as a kind of boardroom buddy. So working either with senior partners, managing partners or chief exec to help with their pain points so it might be about working with a senior team to help them move up to become a high performing team it might be about putting some corporate governance structures in place it might be about helping the agency grow to the next phase or it might just be a sounding board for chief exec slash senior team so it's varying but I'm absolutely loving it because it's tapping into all the things I did it has its stresses and stress it has responsibilities because you can't help but care When you see an agency pitching, you want them to win, even if you're not part of that pitch. But not taking all the problems home with you is a treat as well. (laughs) So, um, but you know, it's a. I think that was what I'm. When I first stepped back, I really wasn't sure at all whether I would step away completely. And if I'm honest, I thought I might. And it's only when you step away and step down and start to do other things, you reflect on the bits of the job that you'd loved, and if you can actually capture that and replicate it, the people, the industry the learnings, the creativity, keeping abreast of technology, all those things really felt very compelling to me. So I'm quite enjoying being back in in that respect, working on, a, you know, not as many days, but working enough, you know, busy 
and enjoying it. Sounds great. And what was it like for you? I'm interested the day after the sale or uh, well, the day after that you could you walked away, you, you could be free of, the, of your responsibilities. How did you feel? Well, it was interesting. The high was the day after the sale because the build up to the sale was stressful because due diligence and everything that goes with that is very onerous. And we realized very early on that you can't take your eye off the ball. So you have a business to run. And that's the main thing because this sale may go away and they do. So you have to run your business as well as you ever run it, but then you have all this due diligence that sits around it and you're making your scenario planning if it goes ahead, if it doesn't go ahead. So the day after that was the moment of calm, if you like, where I just kind of thought of that. That was the big sigh of relief. And actually my next two years are planned out. Leaving was quite sad (laughs) and I hadn't expected it to be, but I think because we did it in COVID, in some ways, I don't know whether you found this in COVID, you become more intensely close to your team, even though you're not physically with them, because you're already on the same problem. We spoke such a lot, you know, we were doing team meetings every morning, and we actually did a leaving, an online leaving do, with Jackie Ian and myself, which I just was very, you know, that it won't be the same, blah, blah, blah. Oh my goodness, it was so emotional. So actually, the day after I left then, I was really upset. <laughs> but I think that was inevitable. But the sale, the sale thing was much more a wow, gosh, I'm so proud that we've done this and mm. it's sustained the business. It's seen it's through, it'll see us through our next phase. It'll consolidate all those mortgages in the business. It'll give people career trajectories they may not have been able to imagine before. So that was a real euphoria. But the actual leaving was a little bit, oh, <laughs> it was the right thing. <laughs> Often it, business needed to move on. And we had this wonderful team in place, but it was a little bit... It is a bit sad. It's a bit sad. Yeah, I'm sure. It's been such a massive part of your life for so long, but no doubt left a huge legacy there. And, and as you say, huge opportunities for your team. Absolutely. And I think a lot of them are doing really well. And we keep in touch a lot. A lot. I mean, Jackie and Ian and I still see each other and I see quite a few people. I mean, everybody's busy, but I keep in touch with quite a lot of the team and I hear from a lot of them. But overall, I feel really proud that we transitioned it twice, you know, from a owner-run business through a trade sale to an MBO, from an MBO to a trade sale. Met some amazing people along the way, learned loads and loads and loads, and feel now that I could look back and present it as a, a mapped out career, but actually it just involved saying yes to lots of things as they cropped up and then working out how to handle them. <laughs> and I know we could do a whole podcast around this, but have you got any, any top tips for people listening who may think, you know, I am working towards an exit down the line? I mean, there are any take-homes for you that that you you've learned in that process yeah I think well, I think the first thing is um look at options so if you because it you know don't just put all your money on one horse so work out what your options are don't lose sight of the fact that you need to keep running your business so don't focus too much on transitioning because then your business will be worth less understand what your various options are and what the key performing metrics are for each of those options so if it's an MBO, what do you need to put in place for that to happen? If it's a trade sale, where might the potential buyers come from and what will they be looking for? What are the key metrics that they'll be looking at? If it's a private equity investment or a sale, why might they buy you and not somebody else? So I think actually having those discussions and flushing it out and then putting a little bit of a straw man behind each one or working out one might feel very appropriate, one might not. It's having the discussions, but all the while not taking your eye off the ball because at the end of the day, your business is is the thing that is valuable. But I think with tiny, tiny tweaks, those businesses could be more saleable. I'll give you a simple example. I didn't know 
what the KPIs were. We were always very strong commercially. We measured everything. Our management information was great. But once we started to talk to people about selling, there are certain KPIs that are really key and you need to reach certain levels. Again, knowing that a couple of years earlier would have made a difference. So simple things like that. And then maybe just try not to lose the joy for the industry because things may or may not happen. So, you know, still do all the things that made it feel joyful, that make it feel joyful. Still do all the things that make sure that your business is growing to be a better, stronger, uh, more interesting business and just keep recruiting the best people still. Because at the end of the day, our businesses are predominantly sort of 70% probably about the people, aren't they? Absolutely. A friend of mine, um, and some of our listeners will know him, uh, Dr. Vikash Jar said recently that he's on a podcast and he said that it's kind of top level businesses similar to the Premier League and the fact that probably the percentage of businesses or individuals in business that go on to make the huge amount of money is the same percentage of footballers that will go on to be Premier League players. And so therefore it's really important to make sure that you're enjoying the process, that you're enjoying the everyday and don't get kind of hooked on the fact that you're going to have an exit because you may not, you know, but you may have a sustainable business that will take you through the whole of your career or, or a career that you love forever. So it's finding that joy in, in what you do. Completely. And I think we're lucky to be in an industry where you can find that. So working with clients, working in industries that you believe you can make a difference with clients that you're going to enjoy working with, with people who you can maybe help their careers and you can enjoy being with, and fulfilling your own personal ambitions. You know, my tribe global for me was a joy. Meeting business owners from different markets, traveling, opening the London office was a joy, experiencing a different network there, building the team in Manchester. So all, I think enjoying the journey is really, really important. Sort of working out what it is that makes you tick and making sure you have enough of that in, in your day to day. Absolutely. And I love the fact that you've worked that out for yourself and you, you're concentrating on those things now in a different kind of iteration. So um, so it's great to see. And and I, I think um, there's so much learning um, in this conversation, Nikki. I think whether somebody is listening and is wanting to build a business to sell it or is looking into how they're going to have a long, sustainable business or just a career that they enjoy, whether a business owner or not. I mean, there's so much in there around clients and relationships and your team members so thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your story with us today yeah thanks for asking me it's been nice to catch up with you that was a fascinating discussion lisa um i've got a a head full of stuff but what are your key takeaways from that chat that you want other agencies to take away well, I think something that's extremely dear to my heart is the importance of having really clear embedded values within your organisation, any organisation. But what's interesting is that when your business like Nikki's has done is going through the significant changes, it's about how you keep those values the same and so how you don't lose track of them. And also in terms of them looking for a potential acquirer for BJL, it was vital for them that they did find an organisation that would reflect how they'd built those those values within their team. It, they weren't just going to sell their business to an organisation who would do, you know, would come in and post something that was totally different. That was that wasn't going to be fair, and it wouldn't be part of the legacy that she wanted to leave. And and I have a lot of respect for that. The other thing is collaboration. I mean, she says that we're stronger together, and again. That's something that I think is vital in careers and it's not just for a successful careers, for a happy career. I mean, you know, we get as much out of those relationships that we make along the way. So she talks about really growing that network, asking for help, 
surround yourself with people that know different things to you because that's where you're going to learn. And if you need help, you can always go to those people. What struck me, though, is her modesty because she doesn't believe that inheriting an agency or becoming part of an agency that you've not started yourself is as much of an achievement as it would be if you'd started one from scratch. And I fundamentally disagree. When she came into that business, she's molded it, she's been a part of it. She's had to create the values um, and the structures and the processes and the team morale very much within that, that iteration of that business. So I think, you know, I'm sure she is, but she should be so proud of her achievements. Um, and it's great to see. And she's, you know, she's enjoying her life now. And as I say, she's getting a bit of golf in. Lisa, which club is she at? Because I need to pick my clubs up again. So, so oh, yeah, you know, I do. Dunham. Dunham and Forest. Dunham. Yeah. I might just hook up with Nikki then and just have a chance for her because my clubs are in a corner. I can see them all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Stories from the MPA, Manchester's Publicity Association. You'll hear from us again in a month's time. This podcast was produced by Purposeful Podcasts. If you want to build a community around your business or brand, you can get in touch with the team at purposefulpodcasts.com. Please remember to follow and share inside stories because that means more people will get to find us. And if you know people who aren't in the MPA but might be interested in joining, then please do share this with them too.